With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Misty Winston Show right here on today's News Talk. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to hang out with me today. I appreciate it. I hope you had a great weekend. Uh, Mine was pretty chill. I did a lot of cleaning. Not my favorite thing to do, but, you know, it's got to be done. So uh, that's what I did all weekend. Um, Okay, so a couple quick things before we jump into the show. First of all, obviously, don't forget that we now offer the video streaming uh, across various platforms. Help us get the word out. Share it with your friends. Let people know it's available. It is relatively new, just a few weeks uh, that we've been live on video. So uh, help us get the word out there. And also don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, all those things, share all those things helps really uh, on the algorithm. So please help us with that. Um, And uh, TNT radio shop live, ready to go, ready for your orders. Uh, Holidays right around the corner. I am panicking internally. (laughs) Um, uh, But if you need some gear for your family, for your loved ones, uh, there's shirts, there's coasters, there's coffee mugs, there's pet stuff. There's everything you can think of. Um, Lots of stuff. So go over there. There's a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, Quick reminder about what we have coming up this week. Today, we have uh, my pal, Brad Pierce. Uh, We're going to talk about the uh, situation in Sudan, something that is highly underreported. Tomorrow, we have Vanessa Beely. I'm always very excited to have Vanessa on the show. Obviously, we will be talking about Israel-Palestine. Shanda Masta's on Wednesday. Uh, That should be a fun one. I love her energy. Matthew Ho, who is a activist. He's a veteran. He's a former Green Party candidate for um, Senate in North Carolina. He's going to be on on Thursday. And then James Roguski is going to be back on Friday to update us on uh, the uh, international health regulations and the WHO and the COVID and all this stuff. Um, They are starting to ramp some things back up uh, here recently. So definitely something we need to start keeping uh, an eye on for sure, as if we ever quit. But I just wanted to give you a heads up about what we have coming up. Um, Okay. Also, just like a little personal thing, my Trump supporter friends, if you could please stop pretending like Donald Trump is going to pardon Julian Assange, that would be lovely. He's not. Um, he didn't. Okay, first of all, it was under Donald J. Trump that Julian Assange was arrested. It was under Donald J. Trump that Julian Assange was spied on at the Ecuadorian embassy. It was under Donald J. Trump that plots were developed to assassinate him. Uh, and then he failed to pardon him the first time. I keep getting people coming to me saying that I can't believe you don't support Donald Trump. He would. Su- he's the only guy who would pardon Julian Assange. My friends, please stop. <laughs> he is not going to do that. And then all the excuses come out. Um, oh, well, his hands were tied. He couldn't do this. He had the wrong people around him. Then why are you supporting him? Clearly, he has no ability to surround himself with the right people. Uh, and he's not going to. It's just I, I, no politician is coming to save you. Please stop. Please stop. Also, Kennedy supporters are doing the same thing with me. I'm not interested. The guy is a fraud. Um, Okay. Uh, I wanted to read this piece from uh, Caitlin Johnstone. Uh, Big surprise. Uh, I love her. So I read her stuff a lot, but it's very, um, a little snarky, which I love, uh, but also very... um, very uh, thought-provoking. So this was published over the weekend. She said, if I were going to commit a genocide, I'd make sure to kill as many women and children as possible to eliminate the future generations of the people I was trying to wipe out. Come to think of it, I guess I'd do what Israel is doing in Gaza. If I were going to commit a genocide, I'd deliberately target civilians and civilian infrastructure to make it harder and harder for the undesirable population to survive. Actually, one good example of this would be what Israel is doing uh, in Gaza today. If I were going to commit a genocide, I'd make sure to target cultural centers to destroy the history and culture of the population I wish to remove, taking out their museums and ancient religious buildings. You know what? I suppose I'd do pretty much exactly what Israel is currently doing in Gaza. Another thing I'd do if I were going to commit a genocide is make sure to kill all the best and brightest members of the population I was trying to exterminate. They're doctors, lawyers, academics, journalists, and thought leaders in order to prevent any reconstruction of the civilization I was trying to stomp out. In other words, what Israel is presently doing in Gaza. If I were going to commit a genocide, obviously I'd have to make sure all my main underlings were on board for the operation. So you'd probably see them spouting genocidal rhetoric all the time in support of those plans, kind of like the way Israeli officials have been talking for the last two months when discussing their operations in Gaza. If I were going to commit a genocide, I'd also want to have a plan to drive the undesirables who couldn't be eliminated by mass murder off the land I wanted them removed from. You'd see people in my government frequently discussing plans for ethnic cleansing in very much the same way you see such discussions over and over again among Israeli officials and thought leaders. 
If I were going to commit a genocide, I'd keep attacking the undesirable population with extreme aggression while pushing them further and further toward a foreign border, eventually forcing other nations to take them in or keep allowing them to be slaughtered as I rain military explosives upon their continually shrinking living, living space. Either way, I get rid of the population I was trying to get rid of, and I can repopulate the land I seized with a more desirable sort of people. In other words, I do exactly what Israel is clearly doing in plain view of the entire world. And she's absolutely right. Um, there's still a ridiculous amount of hand-wringing over whether or not what Israel is doing in Gaza is a genocide. They have very clearly admitted that they are using AI um, uh, targeting uh, 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 technology. Uh, and they have very, very obviously and very proudly admitted that they understand that there is going to be a ton of civilian casualties in using it. And they do not care. They do not care whatsoever that civilians are being uh, slaughtered by the thousands. They are fine with it. This is a genocide. They've never been shy about their intentions. For decades, they've been talking about it. Uh, so the hand wringing over whether or not it's a genocide needs to stop. And somebody, some state out there needs to invoke the genocide convention. As we talked about last week uh, with Sam Husseini, somebody needs to do something that it is taking place, as Caitlin said, in plain view of the entire world and nobody's doing anything is really, really depressing. Um, okay. Don't forget, you can follow me over on the tweeters at Sarcasm Stardust. Check out the Substack, mistywinston.substack.com. There is a write-up for the guests of the day every day, so you can find, follow, and support their work as well. And if you would like, uh, you can share Shoot me an email at mistywinston at tntradio.live. Guest idea, show idea, you want to rant about something, uh, whatever it is, hit me up and I will try to get back to you. Um, and while you're at it, why not give TNT Radio a follow? I'm sure you can imagine we are heavily shadow banned on various platforms. So we are on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. So you can help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I've been in the car all day and I got to listen. Can't get enough of it. You guys are doing a great job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, two of the three suspects accused of setting a setting fire to a Wendy's in Atlanta, Georgia, during the infamous Black Lives Matter riot in 2020, have reportedly accepted plea deals that some might consider no worse than a proverbial slap on the wrist. So here with this story, joining me now is TNT Radio News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. All right, my friend, what's going on here? Yeah. How's it going, Missy? Yeah. Some people, especially the conservatives, um, yes. yeah, drawing a lot of parallels <laughs> here to another event. We'll get to all of that. This is one Chisholm Kingston and uh, what he described at the time, his girlfriend, Natalie White. Uh, these are the two people who were both charged with conspiracy to commit arson in the first degree and two counts of first degree arson. The pair pleaded guilty to their crimes in a plea deal, according to court records now for reducing the business to ash and rubble uh the two have been sentenced to five years probation have been ordered to pay a 500 dollars fine and must complete 150 hours of community service wow their trial is set for next week and it's unclear how the plea deals will impact the outcome in addition to kingston and white one john wesley wade uh age 35 was indicted on the same charges earlier this year in january all three initially pled pleaded not guilty and waived their arraignments back in march of 2022 these charges stem from a violence uh famous one actually blm riot over the death of rayshard brooks 27 who was killed in a police involved shooting in June of 2020, Brooks had reportedly punched Atlanta police officer David Brosnan and stole his taser while under investigation for a DUI in the parking lot of a Wendy's. Brooks aimed the taser at officer Brosnan and a second officer, Garrett Rolfe, shot and killed Brooks during the altercation. Brooks allegedly punched Brosnan hard enough to cause a concussion. As a result, rioters torched the Wendy's in protest of Brooks' death. An autonomous zone, you remember those, was created at the site but was dismantled by police a few days later. Excuse me, later. Violent demonstrations followed throughout the city over the next few months or peaceful protests, whatever you want to call them. During the time of that autonomous zone, sadly, an eight-year-old girl was killed on July 4th, 2020 in the Wendy's parking lot. The girl was Shot and killed as she rode in a car with her mother and another adult. A group had fired multiple gunshots at the vehicle, ultimately resulting in the young girl later dying at the hospital. The officers, Rolf and Brosnan, were ultimately criminally charged by former Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard. Five days later, 
Brosnan charged with aggravated assault and Rolf faces felony murder and assault charges. Rolf was placed on leave following the incident, but was reinstated last spring. As for John Wesley Wade, the third suspect that did not take the plea deal, he is a prominent Black Lives Matter activist in Atlanta and led several protests in the summer of 2020. In fact, in October of that same year, Wade was arrested on federal charges over a string of violent demonstrations and was sentenced to five years in federal prison in March 2022. So what's going on with these two, Kingston and White, the ones who accepted the nice cushy plea deals? Not exactly sure. But as I mentioned earlier, some, well, a lot of conservative politicians, pundits, talking heads and whatnot, not too happy about it. Uh, one in particular would be MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, representative uh, Republican from Georgia. Took to social media? Well, her words say it all, Misty. She posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, J6ers are being locked up for years for walking in the Capitol and some never walked inside at all. But the guys who plead guilty to arson and burned down the Wendy's in Atlanta in the 2020 BLM riots only have to pay a $500 fine. The scales of justice have tipped so hard one way they have fallen off, end quote. Yes, indeed. What do you think, Misty? I think it's hard to take Marjorie Taylor Greene seriously about any of this because uh, just recently she was calling for the Jewish Voices for Peace protests um, to, to all be arrested and all of that stuff, which, it, listen, two wrongs don't make a right, y'all. Uh, wanting Jewish Voices for Peace to be arrested and prosecuted under the same ridiculous stuff that J6ers were, pro that doesn't, how does that help anybody? You should be fighting to get J6ers out of jail, not fighting for more of that same uh, crap. Um, but this, I think, this is interesting because it is, my, I have a little conspiracy theory here that this is all very intentional. They want people divided, and so they have created an environment where J6ers go to jail and BLM protesters get off easy because that just creates animosity between the two groups. It creates this, uh, frankly, it creates a race war type situation and they will do um, anything to avoid a class war type situation. So, and I've been saying that for years and that includes facilitating a race war. So I don't know if that's the case here. I think it's very likely um, we've seen situations like, and I, I think I've ranted about this on the show uh, before. Um, uh, it, they do this stuff all of the time. They, uh, create these environments where there is a, a so-called or there, a, a, the appearance of favoritism or the appearance of being easy on one group and hard on another. They've done that for a very long time. I mean, that's really no surprise. It's something that they do um, uh, uh, regularly, actually, to to create those kinds of divisions and things like that. And they want us divided. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, again, incredibly difficult for me to take her seriously on this issue when she was just calling for protesters uh, to be to face the same sort of persecution that J6ers do. And I have said all along the J6 was a very obvious psyop. It was very obviously fed infiltrated, but so was Black Lives Matter, y'all. So, I mean, I would be curious if uh, these two people have um, have affiliations with federal agents, if they have some sort of ties to, um, uh, if they were known to, you know what I mean? Like that whole thing. Uh, because it, it's, this is not, we see, we saw the same thing with Ray Epps where he was out there, um, you know, antagonizing people, calling for people to go into the Capitol. We saw, I mean, during the Black Lives Matter protests, suddenly, magically out of nowhere, pallets full of bricks would just show up in the street. Crazy, right? Like that's weird. Uh, so it's just, it's very frustrating to me to see each side fall into this stuff and to allow it to um, uh, divide us. That's exactly what they intend. We're much easier to control when we're, we're divided. And both of those situations, Black Lives Matter and J6, were both very heavily infiltrated by uh, federal agents. There's no question about it. Um, and I think that both were organic protests initially. I think uh, I had friends who were on the ground for January 6th. There were a lot of genuine people there who really just felt like they had been screwed over by their government. They were just there to participate in a protest, which we have the legal right to do. Same thing with Black Lives Matter. Um, there were tons of genuine people there who really felt like they were getting screwed over by the cops, that their uh, you know, brothers and sisters and uh, family members had been attacked and been murdered by cops. Um, and then there were the uh, agents of chaos, one might say. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think, though, Adam? I, I think they, they have a very special place reserved for you, Misty. How dare you going off asking these important questions that the journalists <laughs> should be asking? Right. And and uh, not taking not picking a side. I mean, you're supposed to pick a side. So you're yeah. playing the game all wrong. 
So I'm afraid you're fired. Uh, no, yeah, this is, yeah, you're absolutely correct on all of this stuff. It is just a, a divisive tool and uh, it it's continuously worked for them in the past uh, and the present. And unfortunately, on through or into the future, I'm sure, uh, until their their next big toy comes out to play World War Three, right? Um, but yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I miss the times of uh, what was that one actor's name? Uh, Shia LaBeouf, I think he was. He, he was doing this big thing where he was. They will not divide us. They will not divide us. I kind of miss that these days. Yeah, they're very good at dividing us, unfortunately. And I just refuse to pick a side on them. I'm not doing it. I'm not picking a side. Um, I understand the frustrations on uh, both of those quote unquote sides. I just wish more people would be uh, more open to being empathetic to the other side's grievances, recognize that everybody has their own uh, legitimate grievances and recognize that they are very, very good at manipulating these situations uh, to cause chaos for all of us. So, and unfortunately you're right, it'll probably work well into the future because humans never learn. Okay, thanks for bringing us this story, Adam. We will talk to you again tomorrow. As always, hang tight. We'll be right back with our guest right after this on TNT Radio. Jeremy Nell on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both of those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until... I had my own heart event. At first, like so many other women out there, I ignored my symptoms. A slight pressure on my chest, shortness of breath. I thought, I don't have time to be sick. I had a, a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries. Stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. I'm so grateful to the American Heart Association. Their research helped save my life. I can enjoy life with my children, my grandchildren, and my friends. Please, listen to your heart. The only reason I'm here today is because I did. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. All right, my friends. So we will have our guests momentarily. We're having a little bit of an issue connecting, uh, but I do have a couple things that I wanted to go over um, in terms of Julian Assange. So uh, obviously we're still waiting for, unfortunately, as always, we are waiting. Um, uh, the request for appeal, which is kind of the Hail Mary pass, is st we're still waiting for that decision, which is completely absurd. It is so absurd. Uh, but the last one that we uh, that they submitted that the defense, I say we as if I'm like a member of the legal team. I'm not. Uh, lucky for Assange. I am nowhere near qualified for that job. Um, but the defense team, the last time they entered in a request for appeal, it took, I think it was like eight or nine months. <laughs> and then they gave us a three page decision, uh, denying the request for appeal. So, um, this one has been in, um, I think now for four, maybe five months. Um, and we're still waiting for that decision. So um, in the meantime, there are a ton of things that are going on um, uh, that are coming up. So um, if you are in um, Washington, D.C., I want to uh, uh, kind of direct you to the D.C. Action for Assange group. You can find them on Twitter at Assange Action D.C. Um, they do um, a vigil outside of Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland's house. I think 
every other Sunday, if I remember correctly. It might be every Sunday, but I think it's every other Sunday. Um, and they usually try to do that in the afternoon, evening-ish time. I think usually generally around like 4 p.m. Um, and that's a really significant protest. He is almost always home. It's a Sunday. Um, unless he's out of town or whatever, he's almost always home. Secret Service has approached us when we've been there and talked to us. We've had other people, people who are just walking through the neighborhood. Um, they will come up um, and approach and ask questions as well. Sometimes I think that they're just spooks who are um, getting a feel for what we're doing. Um, also, I also wanted to point out that on December 9th, um, the National Press Club, and I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but this is a really cool event that takes place every single year. It's called the Belmarsh Tribunal. Um, they have it at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., um, and it's just basically to discuss the persecution of Julian Assange. It is um, a panel discussion. Um, I think uh, I think Abby Martin's going to be there, Ryan Grimm, um, uh, I think uh, Marjorie Cohen, um, a bunch of people are going to be there. Um, it is a really cool event. They do it every single year um, on December 9th. So definitely do check that out. Um, it's a very cool event. And I think they're going to be live streaming as well. As soon as I have live stream um, links for that, I will tweet it out. Um, so keep an eye on my Twitter page. And also you can just go to um uh, the press club's Twitter page as well. And I think anybody who's participating will also be uh, tweeting it out too. So um, also there is a ton of um, uh, actions, vigils, uh, all kinds of stuff taking place in the month of December, as there always are. I mean, Assange supporters are always doing something. Um, so as I will always say, if you are ever looking for an event near you, or if you are organizing an event and you would like to get the word out, um, I cannot recommend my friend Alex um, enough. Her uh, The Twitter handle is at Candles, the number four Assange. So Candles for Assange. Um, and she, for years, I don't know how she does it, but for years, she has... Uh, uh, been kind of compiling, collecting, organizing all of the global actions that uh, at least the ones that report to her, give her their information. Um, and then she tweets them out from a singular location. So if you are looking for an event that is near you, um, you can go and check that out. Just kind of, she usually does a thread for um, if there's like a global day of action, she'll do one thread that goes through all of the different events. Or if there is like the month of December is pretty busy. Um, uh, obviously there's the holidays and things like that. I think people are trying to take advantage of that um, and get the word out. So there's tons of events um, taking place all over the world. There's stuff in Sydney. Um, they have one on the 9th of December. Uh, that's at 334 Merrickville Road at 1230. That's Anthony Albanese's office. Um, our, uh, the Australian uh, activists have done, it, I mean, honestly, an unbelievable job of uh, getting the word out and also lobbying their politicians. We now, as we've talked about on the show, we now have a cross-partisan a uh, rather large group of Assange supporters in parliament. They actually just did in October a visit here to the United States. And from that visit, we now have that uh, letter in Congress that 16 members of Congress have signed on here in the States uh, and sent to Joe Biden in support of Julian Assange. And that genuinely could not have happened without the work of on-the-ground activists in Australia. They are phenomenal. I love them all. They are fantastic. They're out there all the time doing stuff. Um, so if you are in Australia, you are very lucky. There's tons of cool people that you can go and hang out with on a regular basis in support of Julian Assange. Um, and again, stuff taking place all over. There's another one. Um, I think that this is the, so yeah, it's every other Sunday because there's December 3rd and December 17th from 4 to 5 p.m. at Merrick Garland's um, house, which they don't give out the address because that would be a little shady, <laughs> but they usually meet at a certain location and then they all go to uh, Merrick Garland's house. So um, always something going on. Definitely check out Candles for Assange. You can always find something happening there. Uh, make sure you continue to make phone calls, um, write letters and tweets, all of that stuff. I realize it seems, I get it. I get it, y'all. It seems futile, right? It seems, oh, an email. What good is that going to do? Oh, a phone call. What good is that going to do? Not much if it's just you, but if there are thousands or millions of people making those phone calls and sending those emails, it does start to make a difference. It does start to accumulate. So um, my twin, uh, my twin, my pinned tweet, <laughs> my pinned tweet on Twitter at Sarcasm Stardust um, is a thread of graphics with phone numbers on it here in the United States that you can call for Congress, the Department of Justice, the White House, all that good stuff. So um, uh, all things that everybody can do. Phone calls only take a couple quick minutes. So, um, okay. 
we are going to grab some headlines and then I promise we'll be right back with our guests here on TNT Radio. Today's News Talk Radio. We, we, we do have some big news. What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it now? TNT Radio News. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. Amid growing concerns about Ukraine's ability to continue the fight against the much larger Russian military and failures to recapture any meaningful amount of territory from Moscow's army, there are growing whispers in the halls of power in the West about the ex-Soviet state's prospects in battling back against its former master. A horde of pro-Palestinian protesters spewing hateful threats at a Jewish-owned falafel shop in Philadelphia was put on notice by Pennsylvania's governor after their blatant act of anti-Semitism. The common housefly caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNT Radio. Live. All right. Our guest today is Brad Pierce. Brad is a writer and researcher who you can find on Substack at The Wayward Rabbler. Uh, you can also find his work at the Libertarian Institute, which, by the way, is in the middle of their winter fundraiser. Y'all know I love the Libertarian Institute. I love the guys over there. They do fantastic work. So if you are so inclined, uh, go over and check out their work, libertarianinstitute.org, and make a tax-deductible donation uh, so that they can continue doing the stuff over there. Um, they have so many great people doing work and they uh, publish books, all of that good stuff. And I think they have kickbacks too. If you make a certain donation, uh, I think you can get a, a, one of Scott uh, Horton's books, which I cannot recommend highly enough. So uh, definitely a win-win there. Uh, all right, Brad, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so sorry. I'm late. No, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're going to uh, we're going to get there's a lot of information, though. So I want to make sure we can get through some of it. We're going to be talking yeah. about the situation in Sudan, which obviously has been going on for some time. Uh, really, we could go back decades to examine the history and all of that uh, leading up to the current crisis. Uh, but today we are going to sp uh, specifically focus on current day issues. Uh, they were obviously under one man rule for 30 years under dictator uh, Omar al-Bashir uh, until 2019. Following that uprising, I think that the Sudanese people were very excited. I th think they thought that they were on their way to uh, democracy in some shape, form, or fashion. That does not seem to be happening. Those hopes seem to have been dashed. So set us up a little bit uh, in terms of context as to how we got where we're at now. So the very short story of what happened before there is Bashir held power for so long by empowering various military groups and stuff like that, one of which was the RSF led by this guy that's known as Hamedi. And so when those uprisings happened, him and Burhan, a general in the Sudanese armed forces, did a coup and they initially set up a transitional government with a third guy, some sort of international economist who was the prime minister. They threw him out after a while. This is just like a triumvirate in ancient Rome, honestly. So they threw out the third guy and then you were left with just, you know, Antony and Augustus, basically. And so that was going OK for a while, not getting them any closer to democracy, but it was at least peaceful. And then last April, um, you know, there was the intractable problem of what to do with this large and powerful militia, the RSF. And so there were a lot of attempts at making some sort of agreement that didn't happen. The SAF decided to try to disarm them and instead the RSF attacked and they've been in a brutal civil war ever since. Yeah. And it's I mean, this is uh, it's not getting any coverage, Brad, which is um, I think there's multiple reasons for that. I think that um, you know, over the course of Sudan's history, the Western audiences have been kind of programmed to um, equate conflict in Sudan. And so I think that there might be some sort of fatigue involved where people are just not that interested. They hear that there's some kind of a war or a civil war, there's conflict and they're like, oh, another one. So I think there's a little bit of that. Um, but obviously there's other things going on in the world as well. There's Ukraine and there's Gaza and there's all of this other stuff happening. Um, so I think that there's, uh, and also I think that frankly, I think that the, 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 the the players here in Sudan, and maybe you would agree with this or not, but I think that it's it 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 benefits them if there isn't as much attention going on to what's happening there. Why do you think that there's no coverage of what's going on in Sudan? Well, I do think you're correct that no one is uh has the energy, this sounds terrible, but has to do another genocide in Darfur as a big public cause. Cause you know, you remember when we were younger, that was the huge yeah. thing in the early two thousands. 
And you know, that was done by the Jean Jouid militias, which is what the RSF rose out of. And so the same thing is kind of going on again. The sourcing is really bad. And, you know, I know how atrocity propaganda works, et cetera. So it's really hard to know what's true. But, um, you know, it, what is amazing is when people do discuss it, it's only to try to sell you on whatever other issue they believe, like, oh, you know, Putin's controlling him. The RSF are jihadists. They're connected to Hamas, which, you know, isn't true at all. Um, and, you know, other things of that nature. I, I think that to an extent, um, the SAF does want the outside world to intervene. But at the same time, they're the ones who kicked the UN out of the country because they control the UN seat. And they're the ones that are opposing UN investigations into atrocities that they say their enemy committed. So it's it's very strange. I, I'm sure from the RSF's perspective, it is the best for them if people stay stay out because they're the ones who are winning currently. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's actually there's a paragraph I'm going to read here from your piece that um, really kind of summed up what you were just discussing there, the way that people um, uh, use the confusion and uh, the uh, all of that propaganda and all of that stuff to uh, make things very convoluted. And it was very funny to me because you 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 put a bunch of tweets from various different people over the course of like five days of different things that people were saying about Sudan. And then you summed it up by saying, phew, and people wonder why I have trust issues. Dare we even try to recap. In short, RSF are Islamists, Hamas allied, Zionist puppets of Israel, and the UAE who fight the Islamist SAF while looting Sudan's gold to pay Wagner mercenaries so they can control a Red Sea port in service of pan-Arabism and perpetuate the genocide of Black people due to an ethnic superiority myth. The oldest tweet I featured is from five days ago. This is five days worth of people commenting on Sudan. What's more, this isn't even a major news story among the idiot masses. So if it gets quote-unquote current thing status, the situation will get much worse. And that that really just summed it up because it feels as if... um, uh, this is one of those things that everybody tries to interject another cause into another issue into to further confuse the situation uh, and use it. Essentially, they just want to use it to further their own political aims. But that paragraph, I love your snark there. It was very, very yeah. well played. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, there there is like truth to some of that. I mean, like the RSF is connected to UAE because they move gold through that region. And yeah. th- the other thing is not everything's a huge geopolitical struggle. The fact is that the RSF has physical gold. So people want to work with them because they can pay. And, you know, then that gold UAE brokers gold to Russia. So, you know, people say that funds the Ukraine war. But of course, the Ukraine war is funded out of Russia's normal budget. It's not yeah. like they're, you know, doing weird little things like sure, they make some money. But yeah, it's true of anything Russia does. We want to look at it that way. And, you know, it is also true that there are Islamist elements that are allied with the SAF because that was one of the ways uh, Bashir kept power for so long. So like there are bits of truth to some of that, but yeah, people are, the one that gets me the most is saying that they're Hamas allied and that they're Zionist puppets. And it's just whatever your opinion, people are just going with both those. And the RSF are absolutely neither. They have zero ties to Islamism or to Israel or anything of that nature. Yeah, it just, it, you're right. It makes me laugh when people, uh, you know, use situations like this. It shouldn't make me laugh, but I have a really dark sense of humor and I survive on gallows humor. But this, it just, that that paragraph, I literally laughed out loud when I read it. So kudos to you. It's rare to make yeah, me laugh you. out loud when I'm reading. But all right, we have to take another quick break. But hang tight. We're going to be back with more here on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. These are parlous times for liberty in the United States and for the Constitution and the rule of law. House Republicans have joined with their Democrat colleagues to oust Republican Representative George Santos, only the sixth member to ever be removed from the lower legislative chamber. Three were removed in 1861 after they joined the Confederacy, and the other two following their convictions of the crimes of which they were accused. Santos has been accused of fraud crimes, but not convicted. This is a premature, preemptive strike by Republicans on one of their own, and it sets a dangerous precedent. Now, I hold no grief for George Santos. He seems, quite frankly, like a wingnut, but it's up to the constituents of his district to remove him from office, absent a criminal conviction. This is just one more episode in the long history of Republicans bowing to Democrat will. It seems as though when Democrats win elections, they get their own way. And when Republicans win elections, Democrats still get their own way. This is why we're so upset with the Republican Party. Grow a pair, stand up, 
and say no to the other side. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. You're with Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we are here with Brad Pierce. We're talking about a piece that he wrote uh, covering the situation in Sudan, which, as we just uh, discussed, does not get talked about really at all. Uh, you can check out the piece and Brad's other work over on Substack. Uh, the Wayward Rabbler is where you can find him, R-A-B-B-L-E-R. Um, okay, so um, now you mentioned earlier that it appears as though RSF is winning this situation. Um, so why do you think that and what do you think that that means for this conflict? Um, well, I mean, they're winning in the most obvious conventional sense in that they're taking over territory and expelling the SAF from their military bases, and the SAF is not taking over any RSF territory. So in terms of just having an offensive that's taking land, they're clearly doing that. And they've controlled most of Khartoum. So the only way you can understand Sudan as a country is to think of it as an empire, not as a nation state, because it has this one powerful capital along the river. It's actually three cities, but that is half of the total population. And then these outer areas that they kind of plunder to keep the capital um, happy and functioning. And and uh, so, I mean, he has the capital and Hamedi Strips have the capital. They have most of Darfur where all the gold is. And the SAF has been pushed back mostly to Port Sudan. They keep threatening to set up another government there. And they still control a fair amount of the country. But the RSF has everything that's important and they keep persistently making advances. So and, what do you... As far as, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. As far as what it means, um, it's really hard to say. The RSF is incredible because it appears they don't believe in anything, obviously, but their public statements are like written by a normie political science grad student or something. It's like they have this (laughs) Jeff. They seriously have Jeffersonian Democrat messaging of like, oh, we need to make a a country with full democracy and human rights where every part of the country is represented and make a government that works for the people of Sudan. And, you know, there was like, we're investigating all atrocities. We condemn any human rights violations. It's really a strange thing. They are, their messaging, I will say, is just insanely better than Israel's. I, I have to say that. Well, Israel has not been doing a very good job. They are definitely losing the PR campaign this go around. Uh, I've talked about that extensively on the show. But yes, um, I would agree with you 100%. Now, you mentioned in this piece that um, I think a lot of people would uh, be confused by the fact that this, in your estimation, is not necessarily a broader regional conflict, that this really is kind of um, uh, focused more inside of Sudan. However, there are potentials. uh, There is a potential for that to change. Obviously, I think, as you mentioned, there are several different big name players here. I mean, there's the UAE, there's Saudi Arabia, there's Israel, there's a whole host of people who, um, you know, have interest here that if things go a certain way, it could definitely, uh, you know, uh, bubble up, boil over, you you might say. So explain a little bit about that, because I think that that's something that might confuse some people is because there are so many different players involved here. Um, uh, Explain a little bit about why you, first of all, why you think that this is more of an interior conflict and then uh, how you think that it might be, uh, it might possibly grow to something more regional. So as soon as this started, everyone wanted to say, you know, both of them were on Russia's side. But the reality is shortly before it started, they both agreed together to let Russia put a port on the Sudanese coast in the Red Sea. Um, and, and so like all of the international, so-called international community had been willing to work with both of them when they were the ones in charge and have slowly kind of taken sides. As far as things that could actually happen, um, an Egyptian invasion in support of the SAF would be the biggest one because Egypt has considered Sudan kind of its uh, sphere of influence since time immemorial. Uh, the other thing is that um, Hamedi's tribe have a lot of connections to Chad. Their uh, SAF always portrays him as a foreigner, actually, because they're like uh, a Chadian nomadic tribe, basically. And so there are connections there, and the UAE has set up bases in Chad, where they're alleged to be providing material support and stuff like that. And Hamedi is allied with Hiftar in Libya as well, one of the generals there. Um, 
At the same time, the so-called international community prefers Burhan, both because he represents what you could call the government of Sudan, and more importantly, because uh, there's like a, an elite along the Nile River that a lot of them are Western educated. And so basically, most people that can speak English and use Twitter kind of support uh, the SAF, the, at least more so. Um, and those are the ones that know people at think tanks, that know people at newspapers, that, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, they have kind of support there. But overall, it's really it's just about golden power. I don't know why people have so much trouble understanding this, actually. That's what people usually fight over. Right. <laughs> yes, I keep saying that. Like all of really, if you just pick a conflict, any conflict, it's about. Yeah power and resources. That's really, yeah. that's it. I mean, uh, Smedley Butler told us ages ago, war is a racket. Yeah. It is always a racket. There is no, it's never about democracy or humanitarianism or sovereignty or whatever else uh, they try to sell you. Yeah. It's never about that. It's always about uh, power and all of that stuff. So um, yeah, and this one's really no different. So um, obviously I think that, um, you know, uh, uh, Sudan has been through the ringer. I think that uh, yeah. when I was researching, I, I I learned that they have been through 35 coups, attempted coups and coup plots, yeah. which is more than any other African country. Uh, at, what do you think that that means for Sudan? I, I just, I, I hate to see, I mean, this country is a country that has been in, I mean, perpetual chaos, really. There hasn't really been a time um, of peace, as you said, since once 2019, the overthrow um, uh, yeah. of Al-Shir took place. That was obviously there was not i don't know if it was necessarily peaceful but it was better um but that didn't last long and we've seen this uh playing out for a very long time uh do you think that the, as rsf is winning what do you think that that means that we're headed towards uh, a more peaceful time for sudan or do you think that that's because obviously as you said western powers are more uh, apt to support the other team so uh yeah. do you think that that uh, what do you think that that means for sudan moving forward Okay, well, firstly, Khartoum was actually at peace that entire time until this war broke out because they were always ravaging the exterior to support the capital. So there were always like yeah. civil wars around, but Khartoum was always at peace. Um, as far as what it means, I mean, honestly, like Hamedi's regularly described as a Napoleon type figure. And yeah. in, it's my view that he's capable of ruling Sudan and that Burhan is not, and that Burhan will not transition to democracy either. I don't necessarily know why Hamedi would transition to democracy if he took power, but I mean, he might, he might at least create the veneer of it. Um, I mean, the humanitarian crisis is so bad that I think all that matters is the conflict stopping and any the rule of anyone is going to be better than the conflict continuing. There are other people that observe the situation that expect the country to be partitioned with um, the SAF controlling the eastern portion and the Red Sea coast and everything and Hamedi having the interior and Khartoum. And that's also possible. But uh, the reality is that the public in Sudan cannot hold out much longer. Both sides are regularly attacking civilian areas. The mm. RSF is living off the land, as they used to call it, in the sense that they're like looting houses to get all of their supplies. And, you know, it's, this is all a very ancient conflict. Um, so, I mean, the, the civilians are being attacked from every side. The SAF did airstrikes against the public market recently in Omdurman, which is the twin city of Khartoum. And, you know, the SAF, I'm always trying to tell people that there's no moral difference between an airstrike and, you know, getting out of a truck and shooting people. And, yeah. and this is a conflict that really shows that because, you know, they just massacre the civilians in different ways. But yeah, it's a it's an awful humanitarian crisis. It has to stop one way or another. And I really only see that happening with an RSF victory. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because uh, that's uh, what's so troubling about this is that it's not getting covered and it is a genuinely dire humanitarian crisis. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, the the stories that I've been reading about and researching for this and reading your piece, uh, which, again, everybody needs to go check it out. Brad does great work, very thorough. Uh, he's a great researcher. He does very thorough work. But I mean, the stuff that it, it, we're hearing about, um, I mean, literal rape, pillage and plunder. I mean, that is essentially yeah. what all civilians are are experiencing now in uh, in the region. And it's so much so that it's creating a massive influx of um, people who are fleeing. I mean, and they're fleeing to Chad, which is a neighboring country. But Chad is a very poor country. They can't handle the influx of people. Yeah. Um, so speak a little bit about that, because uh, and also, as we're seeing in Gaza, uh, it doesn't matter if you flee. It's not it's still not even safe to flee. And then once you get to the border, you may not even get through the border. It is a really horrific situation. So talk a little bit about that. 
So there was one bright story about this. I think I actually saw it after I published that piece. I'm not sure. But, there, you know, people also flee to South Darfur as well. And there was a story about a refugee camp there where, you know, they take in everyone, their soldiers fleeing from both sides of the conflict. And they did talk about how they had a soccer match uh, between the Sudanese refugees and the South Sudan people running the camp. So the RSF and SAF soldiers that had uh, fled were on the same side in the game. And, you know, they're all getting along in the refugee camp, the ones that have had the sense to quit the conflict. But yeah, Chad's extremely poor. South Sudan's even more poor than Chad is. Uh, just water's a little bit more available because the climate's different. And Egypt is charging like $2,000 to enter the country for refugees now. And, you know, Sudan's extremely poor. And so Egypt is already dealing with a refugee crisis there, and they're dealing with the Gaza situation on the other side. So Egypt is trying to stop refugees from coming in. And every country around there is extremely impoverished. Uh, some people have never leave through Port Sudan and get, you know, farther away. But, you know, if you're in a little rickety boat, you can only get to Yemen or Saudi Arabia that will basically shoot you for illegally immigrating to it, you know. <clears throat> so there's, I mean, they can try to go on the coast of Somalia. Like the options are just absolutely appalling for like places you could go. Because uh, it's surrounded by some of the most totalitarian countries on earth and some of the poorest countries on earth. Like you can't go as a refugee to Eritrea, you know, like this is crazy. So uh, there's really nothing to be done, but for the fighting to stop somehow and to get humanitarian aid in because people are out of money, they're out of food, water's hard to come by, you know, and it's becoming winter in the desert. It's getting really cold. There's all sorts of violence. It's just, it's an enormous humanitarian catastrophe. Yeah. And it only seems as if it's getting worse. And uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, it, that's the only it, it can only get worse when there's a it situation like this. Right. Until it's until it's over. So uh, I always like to talk about what we can do. And it's I mean, we've seen time and time again, the U.N. is useless. Right. ICC is useless. Uh, and it's just it's so frustrating because like an as an average person, I feel in all of these situations, whether it's Syria, Yemen, Gaza, it doesn't matter. I feel helpless. Yeah. And it's uh, that's very frustrating but i mean what do you what do you think that we can do in terms of um uh helping to facilitate uh, i think that obviously talking about it is helpful because the more that people at least are aware of it and speaking about it that i think that um uh public interest does uh sway uh what the powers that shouldn't be uh are doing and caring about but i think that it's it's very difficult especially in a situation like this as we said um, people I, and you said people just don't have the energy to care. That's I don't think that that's wrong. I mean, it sucks, but I think that that's fairly yeah. accurate. So what do we do? Like, I mean, just it, should we just keep continue talking about it so that people are at least aware of what's going on, hoping to build up that pressure? I mean, I, I would say one important thing is just to know about the situation to try to stop like an international invasion of some sort that would only possibly extend to the conflict and make the humanitarian suffering worse. Um, you know, if you follow things around on Twitter, you can sometimes find things. I don't know of any like viable large scale organizations you trust, but that woman that I shared the video of in the article that goes by Munchkin just the other day is trying to raise money for blankets at a refugee camp. You know, so there's like smaller scale things going on, but it's very difficult uh, to, you know, figure out anything you can really do. Um, there is some small amount of presence of international groups, but, you know, they're kicking the UN out. I don't think the Red Cross operates in very much of the country. Um, so, I mean, in terms of just actual humanitarian aid, it's really hard to know any credible organization uh, in any way you could you could help them. I mean, I haven't tried that hard, though, to, to look, I guess. But, I mean, the biggest thing is trying to stop, uh, yeah, people from deciding to intervene because with all these stories about, you know, a genocide's ongoing, et cetera, you know that there's only one direction that goes. That's what they're trying to get people to do. Yeah, 100%. And that's what's so troubling about this because, um, again, it is just, it's one of those things where um, it, there's not, I feel completely helpless, but it's, you can't just, I, at least I can't, I'm really terrible at like sitting by and doing nothing. I feel like that just makes me feel awful. So um, the the woman that um, uh, Brad is referencing here, uh, if you want to go and check her out, she does regular coverage on this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and her Twitter handle is at BS on blast.
BS yeah. on blast. Uh, she goes by the name Munchkin, but that is her actual Twitter handle. And uh, Brad features a, a, I think it's like a three minute video ish yeah. um, in the piece where he embedded that in there where she kind of, and she, you're right. You describe it as like a really great explainer video. And yeah. I love that those, I love those really like short, concise, yeah. um, really informative videos. Cause I think that that's a really good way to get people, uh, cause yeah. people have very short attention spans, <laughs> unfortunately. So uh, that's a good one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just, it, it, I feel like this, whole situation has been playing out for so long that people are just so um exhausted by hearing about it and you're right when we were kids it was like it it was all of the rage like i've heard a lot of people say that the reason it's not talked about now is because of racism and i just don't agree with that i mean not that there isn't racism in the media of course there is um but when i was a kid everybody that's all people talked about sudan all the time all the time so unless the media has gotten more racist since i was a kid i don't think uh, i don't think that that's it i think it's a lot of uh people being war weary and also i think that there's just bigger geopolitical stories right now that people are uh that are more impactful as we talked about i think sudan is a very kind of insular and i so i think that people are more worried about things that have a a greater impact which that sounds awful because obviously it matters but uh i'm just trying to make sense of why it's not getting the coverage that it really should be getting um but brad's piece is excellent so definitely go and check that out educate yourself about what's going on um i went and followed a whole bunch of people that cover this on a regular basis this is one of those things that when you approach me about covering it i it's one of those things I tell you all the time. I know a little bit about a lot of things. <laughs> this is one of those things that I know about it, right? But I don't I don't have uh, near the knowledge that I should. So um, I think that thank you for writing your piece. It was very informative. Yeah. Uh, you are a really excellent re- uh, researcher. I love thank these. Thank you. I know that you don't know, like... Uh, it's like Scott Horton. He his books are always very lengthy, and he's like, I don't know if anybody's ever going to read this. I will. I like those <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, so right. definitely, it's good work. So okay, we are unfortunately out of time. So um, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your work, all that good stuff. Okay, well, mostly it's at the Wayward Rabbler, as you already said on Substack, and then I'm a regular columnist for the Libertarian Institute now, or that's what I'm calling myself until Scott tells me to call myself something different. But I'm, my <laughs> my work's appearing there about once a week now, so that's uh, the main place you can find me. And then on Twitter at Wayward Rabbler. Yeah, and I think that that's fair. You can call yourself that. I think that um, I don't think yeah. Scott would have a problem with that. And again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Libertarian Institute is currently in the middle of their um, winter fundraiser. Um, I am not a libertarian. Doesn't matter. You don't have to be a libertarian uh, to appreciate the work that they're doing over there. They have really fantastic writers: Scott Horton, Sheldon Richmond, uh, James Bovard, Kyle Anslone, who's a friend of the show, Keith Knight, and also Brad as well. So, um, and they publish a bunch of books. So it's definitely a worthwhile investment to go and contribute to their fundraiser. Um, so go check it out and contribute it is tax deductible as well so uh definitely take advantage of that brad thanks so much for coming on the show to discuss this i would love to have you back again so we can uh dive into some more details on it and i'll be back again tomorrow with vanessa Beely. do not miss that i love when vanessa's on it's always fantastic as julian assange says learn challenge act now and don't go anywhere timothy shays right after this on tnt radio